move into chapter 10 of the book of Proverbs today. We have been coming through the book of Proverbs verse by verse and uh, have been in it for quite a while. I can tell you we'll be in it for quite a while longer, but there's so much in here. Last week we finished chapter 9, and what a great chapter it, it really was, and another piece of the puzzle of our lives uh, to get the understanding of God and the knowledge of God and the wisdom of God, which we all desperately need. And as I said, today we're going to move into Proverbs chapter 10. And I, I want you to notice, um, you know, these are things that you look for in the Bible. From this point on, the flow of information in the book of Proverbs changes slightly. And it's important to note this because uh, these are things you want, to, you want to make a reference to in the Bible and remember them. Uh, where up to now, we have seen um, where four or five verses that will get, that will develop a teaching or an instruction or a doctrine, kind of like, uh, you know, on different subjects, like you'll get five or six verses on the wise man and the foolish man, maybe seven or eight verses on the strange woman and the evil man, maybe two or three on knowledge, wisdom, and understanding, and then maybe a couple on fear of the Lord. From now, from here on out in the book, he changes his format. And this is very important to see this when you come through. Now it's Literally verse by verse with each verse containing a positive and a negative part of the proverb. The first part will be positive in one verse. Then you'll have a colon. And then the second part will be negative. Sometimes it'll switch it up and the first part will be negative. You have a a colon and then the second part will be positive. But each proverb, each verse now will be divided into two separate teachings. One negative, one positive, or one positive and one negative. And you want to note the change here in chapter 10 because the rest of the book of Proverbs for a while anyhow follows this format. And we will enter into uh, this that way and look at these things of how God uh, views every situation in life from a, uh, this is what it does. Now we're beginning to see when we talk about understanding of God and instruction of God and wisdom of God, now we're going to see it in play. You're going to see in each verse where God's thought on the positive is and then the negative aspect, if you don't do it that way. And it forms for us tremendous principles for life. Book of Proverbs is, is a great book. We begin to get into the, the issues of life now that really are instructive to us, showing you God's thought on it and then how the world looks at it. And we'll put the consequences on both together here as we come through it today. Uh, but material like this is absolutely invaluable to have uh, in your life. Now, I want to read then uh, Proverbs chapter 10 in the first four verses here. And we'll try to get through those today. It says this, The Proverbs of Solomon, A wise son maketh a glad father, but a foolish son is the heaviness of his mother. Treasuries of wickedness profit nothing, but righteousness delivereth from death. The Lord will not suffer the soul of the righteous to famish, but he casteth away substance of the wicked. He becometh poor that dealeth with a slack hand, but the hand of the diligent maketh rich. Now, Father, thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus and for the folks that have come out today. And we ask your Lord to give us wisdom and instruction in everything that uh, we endeavor to do today. Uh, Lord, we know that these Proverbs are here for us. We know that, uh, Lord, you gave them to us for a reason And, Lord, we need your people today to take them to heart, to learn from them, to let them instruct us, and then to apply them, and then to try to live them. And we'll thank you now for all we endeavor to do today. In Jesus' name, for a sake we ask it. 
Amen. Now you can see, as I read this, probably something that you never looked at before in Proverbs. You can actually see how the colons divide these up. One is positive, one is negative. Sometimes one starts out negative and then the positive is on the other end, but that's the way it breaks down. Most people that read Proverbs never look at that. They never stop and see that. Those are the kind of things in the Bible that when you get to that level that you can see those things and recognize those things, you're on your way to learning the Bible. Now, the first thing I want to draw your attention to is, uh, I think, probably pretty vital, is why the book of Proverbs is such a vital book in our lives. And uh, Proverbs should be high on your list of books. It really should be. I've told you before that if there's one book in my life that I could get, wish I could get total recall on and use it in everything in life, would be the book of Proverbs. I've tried to do that for 40-some years, and you know, not that I'm giving up on it, but it's, it's quite impossible. Just the book is so uh, comprehensive with all that it has. But the book of Proverbs should be high on our list because, not for the reasons you think, but for, uh, it should be high on your list because you didn't get all of Proverbs that it is. There's a lot more Proverbs that we didn't get. Now, that sounds strange. You'd think that, well, why would that book be high on my list if it's not a complete book? First Kings chapter 4, verse 32, it says that Solomon wrote 3,000 Proverbs. We didn't get nearly that many. Now, again, when I see something like that, Everybody has their own perspective on it, but once you've been in the Bible for a while and you see how God does things and you understand a little bit about God, when I see something like that, then I know I got something real special from God. Because to me, it means that of all the things that Solomon wrote, and I understand that God is the author of all this. Solomon may have wrote them, but God is the one who inspired him to write it, and God then, through his Holy Spirit, chose all of the things that he wanted to give me. And when I see that, then I, I begin to understand that that means that of all the things that Solomon wrote, God handpicked for me what he wanted me to have. Now, I wish he'd have done that for you, but he didn't. He did it for me. That's the way you got to look at the Bible. I love you very much, and I believe you're all probably saved. But you know what? In my mind, I wish God would have wrote you a Bible. He didn't. This is supposed to be funny. You can inject a little humor. I need one of them signs up here that comes on and it says one for you to laugh, to figure this thing out. Your attitude toward the Bible ought to be that it's your book, Amen. nobody else's. Right. You ought to look at the person sitting next to you this morning and say, I wish God would have gave you the Bible that he gave me. That ought to be your attitude. Now, of course, we know that he did and God gave everybody the Bible, but it's how you view it, how you look at it. And that's an incredible thing when it comes to the book of Proverbs. And uh, it, in fact, it is the same way with the Bible. That's when, when you get understanding and you understand what I'm saying, you'll never look at the Bible or the book of Proverbs uh, the same way ever again. I remember years and years and years ago when I was just getting into the Bible, I absolutely I accidentally stumbled upon John chapter 21, verse 25. <laughs> it changed my whole perspective of the Bible. I, from that day in my life many years ago, I never looked at the Bible the same way again. For it says in that last chapter of John in verse 25, it says, And there are also many other things which Jesus did, the which, the things that he did, if they should be written every one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. Amen. Now, you know what that says? That says that God wrote, said, and did many other things. Do you think that Paul only wrote the seven churches? I guarantee you he wrote the more. 
those guys that wrote in there, they wrote many other things. But God handpicked what he wanted me and you to have. It's like God looked at it and sat down and he said, I want to give you this, I want to give you this, because he knew what I needed. And, you know, you got 66 books in the Bible, 1,189 chapters, 31,176 verses. And yet, every one of those are handpicked by God. Yet, you don't have it all. But you got what God wanted you to have. Now, (laughs) the History Channel will tell you that there's lost books in your Bible. You don't have all the Bible. In fact, there was, a, there was a program on just last week. I don't ever watch them anymore. I just, they're all boring to me, but I understand where they're all going. The lost books of the Bible. There's so much of the Bible you don't have, and you need to have all of the other stuff for you really to be in tune with the Bible. No, no, not at all. That's the way the world looks at it. The history channel will tell you your Bible's not complete. I'll tell you you got what God handpicked for you, and that makes the Bible special. That makes the book of Proverbs special. You see, that's understanding, if you can get to that point in your life. Now, by God not giving me everything he said, and yet it's his book that I take from that, that he handpicked what he wanted to give me. Now, I know the Bible's a gift. I get that. It's a gift from God. Supernaturally, God gave it down to man. I understand. We all like gifts, but you realize that some gifts are more special than others? They really are. I mean, uh, you go to get a birthday gift for somebody and, you know, you you just pull something off the rack or get something off the shelf, wrap it up and give it to them. That's nice, but that's not special. See? Now, I got to be honest with us guys here, and the women will probably bear this out, probably get an overwhelming rise of amens out of this, but, you know, most husbands do that. They really do. Your anniversary's coming up, your wife's birthday coming up, you know, if you don't forget about it, first of all, or you kept it at the last minute, you run down to the, down to the grocery store, down to the, you know, the, the uh, drug store someplace, and you just go down that thing, and you just, that, that's it, and pull it out, and off you go with it, you know. I honestly, I had a guy one time years ago that did that same thing, and he got his wife a sympathy for her death on her birthday, you know, <laughs> not paying attention to the card. Got to look at what you pick up. I mean, it's just that simple, but most husbands do that. I, I know, and before, I'll just say this to the women. Most, some women do it too. Everybody got married, and when you got married, you all got nine toasters or four or five blenders. So you know what you do? You stack them away someplace, and the next wedding you go to, you give them one of your toasters. You see? That's how it works. That's good. Everybody needs a toaster. But that's not special, you see? Now, we have a lot of couples getting married around here, and I, I appreciate it, but, and I'm not saying you're not special when you, got, when you get married. I'm not saying that at all. I'm not even suggesting that. But every once in a while, uh, uh, something special comes along. Now, a while back, about July or someplace, Justin back here, raise your hand, Justin, asked Angela to marry him. Angela, raise your hand. Now, oh, I'm glad that's you. I don't have my, I was looking over the top of my glasses there. <laughs> and, you know, you know, and... You get an engagement ring when you get married, right? But Justin, he wanted it to be special. He took his grandmother's diamond, if I have this story right. Was it your grandmother? Your grandmother's diamond, took it out of the setting, then put it in a brand new setting, and then gave her that ring. See, that's special. That's special. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. You know why? I'll tell you why. Yeah, yeah. 
because most of the guys in here got their engagement ring off that TV channel that you buy stuff off of. That's why. Don't let them give you a tough time, Justin. That was special. That was special. Or, like the one guy I knew, gave her a Zyconian diamond. Told the girl that it was so special because Zyconian was mined on the planet Zycon. She believed him. So to me, when I see Solomon wrote 3,000 Proverbs, and I only got about two or 300 of them in here, that's special to me. That's something special to me. I know that that's something God did for me. God, I can just see him now sitting up there eons in the past with me on his mind. He didn't have time to think about you because he's too busy thinking about me. And he was thinking, he'll, Bob will need this. He'll need that. I'm going to give him this. I'm going to put this in here. He won't need that. And he won't need this. But he needs this. He needs this. And he needs this. Now that's special to me. Okay, now let's look at some of these. Let's look at some of these here and uh, we'll look at the two parts here as we come down through it. But these are something special that God gave us. All right, verse 1 says, A wise son maketh a glad father, but a foolish son is the heaviness of his mother. Now remember now that, I don't want you to forget this, that we know that all Scripture has three basic applications to it. So when he says a wise son maketh a glad father, but a foolish son is the heaviness of his mother, historically we know he's talking about his own son, which we know to be Rehoboam. And if you know a little bit more about the Bible, you know that uh, Rehoboam's uh, mom was the Ammonite, whose name was uh, Hanah, I believe it was. Uh, Hamah was what it was. So we know that historically, he's talking about that. Now, doctrinally, prophetically, a wise son maketh a glad father, but a foolish son is the heaven of his mother. Doctrinally, in the Old Testament, would be the nation of Israel. And the mother of Israel, we know, is the city Jerusalem. In a doctrinal sense, in the New Testament, it would be the church. And our mother, from the book of Galatians, is New Jerusalem, is the mother of us all, the Bible says. But inspirationally, just so you understand where we're going here, inspirationally, it'll be any family with any mother and father uh, and their boy, and it's an absolute true statement. One of the great true statements of life that you learn from. Now, I need to explain this. He's addressing only sons here, not daughters. <clears throat> and that would be <clears throat> maybe confusing to some people, but we need to put it into a context. Israel, <clears throat> as we know, and the church from a doctrinal standpoint, is God's son. We know that. <clears throat> but yet at the same time, you never find daughters of God in the Bible. They're always sons of God because the Bible knows that when you got saved, you're made in the image of God. And when it says in 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, Beloved, now are we the sons of God. It doth not yet appear what it shall be. He's talking to men and women. So I just want to put that into a context for you. Understanding that historically, it's a cultural deal. It is. Uh, but inspirationally, it can apply to a son or a daughter. But in the principle here, he's talking about a boy that's in the family. So I just want you to, you to know that. Keep it in the context. Now, from a practical, inspirational standpoint, when it comes to having children, most fathers want a boy. Not all of them. There's exceptions to it. But most down through life will. 
Most dads want a boy because they want to grow up with a boy and they want to do those things. Well, do you want a boy or you want a girl? You want a boy, right? Yeah, we want a boy. Well, we want no boy boys like you, but we want a boy too, okay? But that's true. Proved my point. Most boys, uh, most dads want a boy. And it's okay. Nothing wrong with that. I'm not, what I'm about to say doesn't mean that there's something spiritually wrong with you if you want a boy versus a girl. Some people want a girl, but generally speaking, most fathers uh, want a boy. In their mindset, the way they're thinking about it, uh, they, they want to have a boy grow up with them. They, wanna, they, can, they think in their mind they can do a lot more with a boy <coughs> as a dad than, than with a daughter. I understand that. You know, dads take their boys out hunting. Most girls don't want to go out hunting. I mean, uh, they just don't. I mean, I, the tragic little story down in, was it in Texas someplace where that little 11-year-old girl, her mom and dad took her to a firing range where you could fire full automatic weapons and put an Uzi in her hand, full automatic Uzi. <clears throat> and, you know, 11-year-old daughter, 11-year-old girl, give her a full automatic Uzi. She fired it, and, of course, anybody who fires an Uzi knows that it pulls up and to the left when full automatic. And the guy standing over here is the instructor. <laughs> Bad place to stand. And she shot him, you see. Now, if my daughters would have been doing that, everybody in the place would have been dead. They'd have sprayed the place like bug spray. But I'm telling you, that's not maybe what a girl should be doing. I mean, I know that there's girls that like to shoot, girls like to hunt. I get it. But I'm not sure a full automatic Uzi is in the game plan on something. Maybe I'm wrong. But... Her dad wanted to take her out, wanted to macho her up, you know, and he probably never had a boy, so he stuck her out there and said, my daughter's going to learn to shoot an Uzi. Okay. She learned the hard way. Dad liked to take their boys out fishing. Most girls don't like to fish. I would never take my two girls fishing. I mean, absolutely, they wouldn't even sit on the dirty boat seat. (laughs) Jamie, there is not enough handy wipes on planet Earth to wipe that seat off. And I can see both of them taking them big old fat night crawlers out and hooking them on a hook. Never going to happen. Never going to happen. I'm telling you, that's just the way it works. There are some exceptions. My two girls are not. When we used to go, kid, we, we still go, we go to a motel and stay overnight someplace. She takes her own sheets. She takes her own blankets. And when it comes to going to the bathroom, she has her own biological radiation proof suit that she wears. <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. <clears throat> they like to play sports. They like to play baseball, football, soccer. Dads like to encourage them, to watch them, vicariously experience, you know, their own life with their own son. Now, I realize that today the girls are doing that too. I understand it. But it's only been in the last 20, 30, 40 years that that's really come on. Because traditionally it's a man thing, see? And I know it goes back hundreds of years. I mean, the kings of England, the kings of France, the kings of Spain, if you know anything about European history, they didn't want daughters. They wanted sons. They wanted sons so an heir on their throne was a male. I know that doesn't fly today in the, in the world that we live in with women equal rights. I get it. I'm not saying it was right. I think, I, I know for a fact that one of the greatest, uh, two of the greatest queens that Eng- England ever had turned the whole world around because she believed the word of God. So I don't always buy into it. I'm just telling you the way it is. Henry VIII. Henry VIII had six wives. You know, he killed a bunch of them and got rid of them and kept getting more. You know why? Because the ones he had kept just producing girls. He wanted a son. And finally, he got one, Edward VI. 
And you see him on cigar boxes a lot, Edward the Sixth, you know, but, you know, you don't smoke cigars anymore, so anyway. <laughs> now, but that's a, it's a true thing. That's the way it works. Now, I can speak from limited experience here because uh, both our children, we had, uh, we never had any boys. I had two girls. And for me, it was never an issue one way or the other. But I'll, be tell, I'll tell you right now, but in front of everybody here, everybody, I wouldn't trade my two girls for 100 boys. See, I mean, now that I've had them and I had them up there, I mean, uh, you know what? I, I just wouldn't trade my two girls for all the boys in the world. But, it, but it, it's all how you approach it, you see. Somebody says, well, like, Will, I really want a boy. I understand it. I get it. Nothing wrong with that. But I'm telling you, it, it's, it's, it's generally true, but there are exceptions to it. You know, I never had any sons. But yet when my daughters got married... They gave me two of the best sons a man could ever want or ever have. So I'm, I'm, I, it's a win-win for me. I don't think in terms of son-in-laws. I think in terms of sons. Son-in-law is not even my vocabulary. They're my sons. They love my two daughters. They're good to them. They provide for them. And yet they know how to handle them when they get out of line. <laughs> they know how to do it without showing any bruises up a couple of days later. That's vital. So I understand the verse. Say, I get it. I get it. I I understand how it works. And I know that uh, when it says a son, but it also uh, can work both ways. I just want you to understand that. Now, Now, let me say this, and I probably better throw this in just so I put the whole package together here. In my under talk about understanding, in my understanding, and the job that God has given me to do, I totally understand why God never gave me any boys. I, 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 I'm, a, I'm a different case than most guys that you find in life. Uh, God never gave me sons in a physical sense because he knew that I would have to be the father spiritually to hundreds of boys in the ministry and girls too who never had a real spiritual father. And, and you know, the Bible says you're sons of God and for the God, job God given me to do, he knew I was going to have to take hundred sons on and be there for them and help them through things and be the, them to the father spiritually. I'm not saying they didn't have good fathers. Some of them did, some of them didn't. But, uh, you know, they didn't have the spiritual fathers or their fathers wanted nothing to do with them. So I had to be the father to them. A lot of the guys around here call me dad. They call me pop. I don't appreciate it. When they start calling me grandpa, we're going to have some words at that particular <laughs> point in time. But I get it. And daughters too, because they're sons in God's eyes, sons of God. But it, in my way of thinking, it would have been totally unfair for me to have boys because I know that there have been times when my girls have suffered because of what I've had to do, but it would have been totally unfair for me to have boys and then have to be with other guys and take care of them, and it wouldn't have been fair to my guys, my own boys. So I understand what God's doing, and I'm good with it. I understand. So God just worked it out that way, and I'm fine with it. I got the two best girls in the world, two best sons in the world, and probably a hundred or so other sons out here that were just as tight as we can be. My whole life has been taking young men and young ladies who want to learn the Bible, who want to get in the Bible, who want to get to where they want to get in life and help them get there. That's the job that God has called me to do. I get it. I understand it. And, uh, but I understand what Proverbs is saying here. Traditionally, a son, the firstborn son in a family, will be the second in command under the father. He gets the largest part of the father's inheritance because of that. 
Now, that's not so much true in the U.S. anymore, but it's true around the rest of the world if you ever, most of us don't get out much. In the Muslim world, sons are number one. I always kind of laugh when I hear the news broadcast that all oh, the mean Americans bombed uh, uh, so-and-so Muslim general uh, Hobaka, Hobaka, Homama, whatever his name is, and, uh, and uh, two of his daughters were killed in a raid, and he's greatly distressed. Let me tell you something. When you hear stuff like that, you know that's nothing but propaganda. Muslims care more for their dogs than they do their women. If it ain't a son, you don't count. I mean, that's just that culture. All around the world you find it. Most countries, most cultures, like I said, sons are, sons are number one. All down through history. And the reason for that is a, pro, a father will take pride in his son's accomplishment because in his eyes it reflects back on him as a man. See, that's what it's all about. It's easier to bond with a son than a daughter from the world viewpoint or how the guy looks at it. Not necessarily true. In the old days, uh, when you had a son and he grew up, the American Indians, when your, your son grew up, he wanted to be, brave, be a brave and to be a brave, he had to do certain things. They took him out hunting one time, and he killed his first deer. He had to go over there and cut his throat and drink the blood out of that deer. It was like a rite of passage to manhood. The Vikings used to have their, their kids grew up, their boys grew up, and a dad took them out, gave him his favorite knife because now he's of age, you know, or his favorite club or whatever he gave him, you know. And he had to go out, and when he, he had to kill somebody. And when he killed somebody, now he's a man. See, that's how it's all worked down through history. That's the way it goes. And uh, dads, uh, you know, they, 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 they get, take them to baseball. Dad says, help me throw the ball. Uh, help me with my passing game. Let's go out and shoot some hoops one-on-one with dad. With a daughter, it's a little different. Hey, dad, what outfit will match up with my Barbie doll with the purse in my shoes, you see? <laughs> I get it. I understand it. So the Bible says in Proverbs chapter 10, verse 1, a wise son maketh a glad father. Fathers are proud of their sons. Now, you can take that into the biblical sense because God was proud of his son. He said, this is my beloved son whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. He says in the book of Psalms that he's the apple of my eye. You see it on cars all the time on bumper stickers. My son's an Eagle Scout. That's a great thing. My son's a soldier. Or Marine. That's a great thing. My son is an honor roll student. Or my child is an honor roll student. That is a great thing. Fathers take pride in that. But in all the years of my driving, and I've driven all over the world and all over the country, and certainly all around Kansas City, of all the bumper stickers I've seen, I've never seen one said, my son just got a DWI. My son's a dope addict. My son's an alcoholic. My son just got some girl pregnant. Come celebrate with us. Well, I've known a couple parents that have done that. But anyway, <laughs> you don't find that. Now, you and I as God's son, I don't want our father to be proud of us in a spiritual sense. You should. You ought to look at it in a spiritual eye that you're out there doing something for God and you're either teaching someplace or discipling or preaching someplace or out doing something for Him. You ought to get the imagination in your mind that God's up there looking over the banners to heaven saying, that's my boy, he's doing good down there. Look at him go. You preach down at the mission or some of you teenagers preach at these youth evangelists, you ought to get the idea that God's watching up there and saying, that's my son. Whether you're a girl or a guy, in God's mind, you're his son. That's my child. That's my boy. That's my son down there. Look at him go. 
Look what he's doing. Look how good he is. One of the things that, that shows me that God's people really have no relationship with God day, today, you know what it is? It's a simple thing. They don't care anything about embarrassing their father. Never even thinks, never even thought about it. Then the second part of verse 10. And boy, this is so true. A wise son maker, the glad father, that's positive. But a foolish son is the heaviness of his mother. That's negative. Now, this is a tremendous life concept. And brother, it's true. Uh, in many cases today, too many. The son turns out to be a fool like Solomon's son did. And I guess there's no bigger fool in the Bible than Rehoboam. Sometimes they grow up and they're just worthless. Cause you one embarrassment after the other, one headache, one heartache after the other. They turn out to be everything that you never wanted them to be. Now, the verse is a rich verse because it shows us many things. It shows, one, how differently a man and a mother deal with their children's issues. A son in this case, but in reality, both. Now, the father usually deals with a failed son in total anger. Not always, but 98% of the time, most generally. He's mad at the kid for what he's done, how he's failed, how he's worthless. It comes back to how he's embarrassed me. What are people going to think? This is especially true of Christian parents who get to the point in their life where they think that, uh, you know, they've got some high prestige in the church someplace and their kid screws up and therefore, you know, it reflects on them. And it's an embarrassment to them. Now, his anger would be okay if it was anger in the right place at the right reason. But the father never gets it. I don't know how many times I've seen fathers wonder why their kids won't come to church on Sunday morning. And yet, when the kids were growing up, you taught them it was more important to play ball on Sunday morning than it was to be in church. Then you wonder why they screw up. You teach them all the wrong things because you want them to be successful in playing ball. Well, maybe he can get a scholarship. Or maybe That's all good stuff. But you know what? Never at the price of what God wants him to do. It's just that simple. And now it's his fault, you see. Many times he can't deal with the principle of the fact that everything rises and falls on leadership. And his anger at the child is nothing more than mask his failure as a father. I, I'm, I get it. But moms always deal with it differently. She carries the heaviness of it all that a man, most men, will just never understand. She's made different. She gave life to that boy, that child. She carried that child for nine months. He breathed her air. His, her blood circulated through his veins. And there'll never be any father who can build that kind of bonding experience no matter what. She took care of him. She changed his diapers while dad was at work. She held him when he cried, when he fell down and skinned his knee. She nursed him back when he was sick. Why, no matter how big the boy gets or how far away he lives, you never talk bad about his mother. Hey, I've had kids whose mothers were absolutely worthless. They were absolutely absolutely worthless, and he did nothing for these kids that was spiritually positive. Their life was one total disaster after another, 
But when you're dealing with the kids, I'm always careful never to say anything negative about the mother unless the child brings it up. And even then, I'm very, very cautious of what I say because you know what? I've had it many, many times. At the end of the day, no matter how rotten she was, no matter what she did that wasn't right, no how many times she'd been married or how many things she screwed up her life in, she's still my mother. That's a great principle. That's a great principle. It's a great principle. In sports, when a guy does some great thing out there and they, they interview him, you know, you know what he says? Hi, Mom. He doesn't say, hi, Dad. He says, hi, Mom. And when they're on the battlefields in World War II in the beaches or in Korea in the Chosen Reservoir or in the jungles of Vietnam and the boy's laying there with his guts blown out with a pool of blood, the last cry out of his mouth is for his mother, not his dad. No matter what the circumstances or how it happened or who's to blame, when I find myself in dealing with those kind of situations, I always feel bad for the mom when she loses her son to sin or her daughter. I always feel bad for them. But it's the mother, the mom, who more than anyone else knows and carries that heaviness of her child in her heart. You know, a reason for that many, many times that she even adds to that is because she knows that she's number two in command. I don't know how many times I've had mom say to me, you know, what am I going to do? I want to do what's right with the boy, but it's my husband. He won't do what's right. Hey, I want to tell you something. I've seen husbands that were, didn't want anything to do with God and the mother did, and he took that boy. I've seen dads take that boy out and teach him how to smoke his first joint. Take him out and buy him his first marijuana cigarette. Buy him his crack. I've seen it come to the point where mom got so brokenhearted because after the boy got hooked on it, his best smoking buddy was his dad of drugs. I'm telling you. Mom gets frustrated because she feels like she's in a no-win situation. She's number two. The dad has more influence. She wants her boy to do what's right. She tries to do what, but she's got a deadbeat husband who's part of the world system, and it frustrates her, and it adds to the heaviness of what she goes through. I understand it in a, in a biblical sense because I've had kids in my life that I thought that in my, churches, my church over the years, in my life over the years in the ministry, that, I, that really had great potential. They really, I really thought they could really do good. But they were screwed up from one end to the other. And they were screwed up because the parents were screwed up. And I'd have the parents come to me and say, help my boy, help my girl. In a couple cases, after exhaustively trying and getting nowhere, I said to both of them, you know what? I just cannot overcome what you guys have done to him or her as parents. I can't turn it around. That's frustrating. And many times a mom feels that. Many times she carries that heaviness of watching that boy that she nurtured, that she brought up. I'm going to tell you something. There are more, down, you go down through the Philadelphian church age and find some of the greatest preachers you ever saw in your life, some of the greatest evangelists, some of the greatest missionaries. It may not be in the books written about them. It may not be in the annals of history that you can get your hands on, but I guarantee the judgment seat of Christ, the reason why those boys and those men are out there and did what they did, because there was a mama praying for them every day of their life. I guarantee you. And where the father gets mad and blames the son and goes to work and lets other things fill his mind, the mother, she cries herself to sleep every night. 
and carries that burden of heaviness in her heart. She just worries and frets. It's a heaviness in her heart that no man on this earth will probably ever be able to understand. Oh, Proverbs chapter 10, verse 1, my friend, is a great principle on life. And then the father not understanding where the mom is at, this is how it goes, compounding effect, just leads to other issues in their marriage. But that's another study. They get odd with each other. Anger comes in. Bitterness comes in. It's a real mess. But there's no truer statement than Proverbs chapter 10, verse 1. It is positive and it is negative. Look at verse 2. Treasures of the wicked, wickeds, profit is nothing, but righteous, righteousness delivered from death. Now, see, there's reversed. There's the first one negative and the second one's positive. It's just the opposite of what you have before. Now, notice here, he's not talking about a particular person. It's not the treasures of the wicked, but treasures of wickedness. And in a verse, it says that any wickedness will not profit you in the end. And that's a true statement. It's something that the quicker you learn it, the better off you're going to be. In the Bible, there's a great principle found in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. And it's one we shall uh, all ought to remember. And it says, if any man striveth for the masteries, yet he is not crowned, except he strive lawfully. What he's saying here is this. Anything you do in life and anything you get in life, it's a no profit to you in life if you didn't, one, do it right and get it right. That's what he's talking about, running lawfully. Riches gained by wickedness will always evaporate into more wickedness. People who try to get ahead by not being honest and fair might look like they do prosper, but they never do. Hey, there have been many a businessman that wasn't satisfied with the money he was making, and he started to do some underhand and stuff to make more money, and he makes hundreds of thousands or maybe even millions of dollars. But when he's caught, he spends three times that much in legal defenses and still goes to jail. Didn't profit him a thing. About 10 years ago, there was a doctor over in Kansas. Some of you probably remember this. He had the cancer wa- drug, and he was watering it down. And he was giving cancer patients less than they were paying for, making more money because he could make the drugs go farther, very expensive drug. But the people weren't getting the full dose, and many of them died. I don't know how many millions of dollars he made. But when he got caught, the final charges It cost him much more than he ever made. About 300 lawsuits, $2 million in fines, and 100 years in jail. People cheat on their income tax. You never get ahead that way. Mechanics. Everybody's afraid of going taking your car to a mechanic because you don't know what's wrong with the engine. He could charge. And there's how many times you see on Channel 9, Channel 5, Channel 41, these undercover guys that go in, and these mechanics charge you for things they don't ever do. Happens all the time. I knew a, personally knew a pharmacist, year, pharmacist years ago, and uh, same man, nicest guy you ever met in your life, found out years after he was into this thing that he was into Medicaid fraud, and he was frauding the government for false charges in Medicaid. He probably ripped the government off for three or four millions of dollars, and he finally got busted. You know what? He went out and killed himself. Never enjoyed a dime of it. You never do. The verse is true. The true proverb. Now, I always like to give you examples uh, of things in the Bible that illustrate that. And in the Bible, there's two great examples of this proverbs, one in the Old Testament, one in the New Testament. 
One in Genesis 37, 28, it's the story of Joseph and his brothers selling him to the Midianites for 20 pieces of silver. The one in the New Testament, Matthew 26, 47 through 50, and Matthew 27, 3, and that's the story of Judas selling out Christ for 30 pieces of silver. They both got the money, riches, by wickedness, but neither one of them ever got to enjoy the money. The brothers, after they sold Joseph, they go through a number of years of famine, destitution, where they lose everything, and they, 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 they didn't get a thing out of what they did. Judas goes out and hangs himself and goes to hell. And uh, the treasures of the wicked profit both of them nothing. Now look at the second part of verse 2. But righteousness delivers from death. Now the verse is real simple. The Bible, if you apply it, you get its principles, will deliver you from that kind of lifestyle. There have been many a man who committed wickedness to gain riches, women too. You read about it all the time. Somebody concocts a plan to kill their spouse to get their insurance money and winds up in the gas chamber or prison for the rest of their life. Many a man held up a gas station or a liquor store, got $30 in his pocket out of the cash register, but wound up in the process killing the owner and got the electric chair. Now, there's a lot of talk today about the death penalty. I don't know where you're at with it. If you're a Bible-believing Christian, I know where you ought to be at with it. But, uh, but I, don't, I don't push my viewpoint on, on anything else. But uh, I want to tell you, I think the death penalty for murder is a good thing. And I'm not a liberal, and I'm not a Democrat, nor I'm a Republican. I'm a Bible-believing Christian. And in the Bible, you find capital punishment taught before the law in Genesis chapter 9, during the law in Exodus chapter 20, and after the law in Acts chapter 25. So the Bible takes a stand on it. And I'll tell you what, I, Missouri is a state that, boy, she doesn't miss a trick. She's killing them just like that. Hardly a month goes by and somebody isn't getting a needle. But a lot of talk today that people don't like it. They don't want a murderer who raped four ladies or killed this person or butchered that person or did this. They don't want them suffering. Now, I understand where our society gets that mindset, but that ain't the Bible mindset. I'm telling you. And I, I've been asked this before many, many times. You see, the Bible says if you shed blood, by man's blood, you sh- your blood shall be shed. Simple as that. And I get people ask me all the time, well, you know what? Here's a guy that he, he killed somebody. He murdered some gal. He raped her. He did this. He did that. And, uh, and uh, you know, uh, he got in prison. He's been on death row for 15 years when they worked through the appeal process. But in the process, he got saved. Glory to God. He's saved now. Praise the Lord, yeah. Praise the Lord is right. Now what do we do? Kill him. You think getting saved erases the fact of what you did? If you really got saved at this point, you ought to say, now I'm saved, I'm going to take responsibility for what I did. I'm going to be executed next week. I'm just glad I'm going to heaven now instead of going to hell. That's how it ought to be. Now, you know why I, I speak like that? Because I'm not afraid of the death penalty. You know why I'm not afraid of the death penalty? Because I'm not planning on killing anybody. I just want to live my life in peace and righteousness and and run as lawfully as I can. You see, when you're righteous life and you try to be as close to God as you can, you don't do those things. Those things are the farthest thing from your mind. That Bible will deliver you from that kind of stuff. It'll deliver you from death. You won't get caught up in those things. It'll bring you the right way down the right path. All right, look at verse 3. 
The Lord will not suffer the soul of the righteous to famish. Cohen. That's positive. But he casts away the substance of the wicked. That's negative. Now, the word substance, the last part of that verse there, is a good word. I like that word. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. I like Christians with substance. I really do. When I see a young man or a young lady or a couple or a mom and dad or an older couple and they got substance in their life, I like that. I want to hang out with people like that. I want people like that in my church. I want people of substance. I like family of substance. I've watched families have to go through some hard decisions with their own kids, and it's a heartbreaking decision, but they do the right thing, and I, and I respect them, and I, 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 I watch for that, and I look for that, and when I see that, I have the utmost respect, and it puts in my mind, you know what, there's a family with substance. Not all families will do that. And if there's one thing that God's people lack today, generally, in most cases, it's substance. Luke chapter 15, verse 3 says that the, the uh, young man that went out, the prodigal son, that he wasted his substance with riotous living. Threw it away. Now, look at verse 3. Notice the word famish. We get our word famine comes from that word. And if you know your Bible at all, you know that will run back to Amos chapter 8, verse 11 and 12. Because it says back there, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord God, that I will send a famine in the land, not of famine of bread, nor of thirst or water, but of the hearing of the words of the Lord. And they shall wander from sea to sea and from the north, even unto the east, and they will run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord and shall not find it. Now that Bible says that, there, that, that the word of the Lord, uh, the word famine, that Bible says that God will keep us from uh, being uh, in that famine. It'll keep us, it'll give us everything that we need. It's the Word of God in your life that gives you the substance of our lives. And when I talk about building people or taking people and building character in their life and building substance in their life, I'm talking about putting the Bible in their life, some things that sticks with you. My old grandmother used to say, she always used to, I used to have to go to her before I went to school in the morning when my mom and dad were working. I was just a little guy. <clears throat> she always used to fix breakfast, and I always just liked cereal. I could hear her saying it now. She'd say, Bobby... Come down here and eat this oatmeal and grits. I hate oatmeal and grits to this day. I would never eat them if I was dying and starving to death. She'd fix them every morning. I wanted Frosted Flakes. I wanted them little Cheerios with little sprinkles on them. I wanted Fruit Loops. I, I wanted all that fun stuff. No, no, no. She, she, made, she made grits and she made oatmeal and she would always tell me, that stuff won't do this for you. This stuff will stick to your ribs. It did too. That's what God's people need. They need some substance that'll stick to them. We live in a time of the beginning of this famine. Now, I understand the book of Amos here in chapter 8. The context there is the tribulation. I get that. But, brother, it's that famine starts in the church age. And I want you to notice, it says the famine of the hearing of the words of the Lord. Most people read that wrong, and most people get that wrong. It isn't the fact that the Bible's not here. It's not the fact that it's a famine of the Word of God. It's a famine of hearing of the Word of God. It's here. Nobody's hearing it anymore. You know, I look across this church and see some of you guys and gals that have been here for a while and been in the book. I'd put you up against anybody in this city, probably this country, any pastor, any, any Christian, any place at all, when it comes toe-to-toe with that Bible. You know why? Because you've got substance to it. The book means something to it. You understand it. 
You know it. And that's what I'm looking for. Uh, yeah, they don't have any substance to them. You do. You understand uh, in the word uh, that, uh, that that thing sticks to you and it gives you what you want. You know, the world's always taking things and turning them around. In the world, when you got a guy who's a drug addict, he's called a substance abuser. But that's not really true from a Bible standpoint. Now, it is true he's a crackhead. It's true he's a pill pusher, pill popper, dope addict, dope head. That's absolutely true. But he's not a substance abuser, according to the Bible, because he has no substance to him. See? You know what I know the real substance abuser? It's God's people who are saved and have the word of God and the Holy Spirit of God in them, but you abuse the substance that God wants to give you. Last part of verse 3 says, but he casteth away the substance of the wicked. They don't have any substance. A wicked man has no substance to abuse. God takes it from him. Again, you see this in a literal sense in the Old Testament. The other nations in the Old Testament always were against the nation of Israel. Many times they were bigger. They were stronger than Israel. Many times they united together to crush the Jews. Well, when they went into the book of Joshua, into the land, the devil had seven nations make an alliance against the nation of Israel. They were so overwhelmed it was unbelievable. But as long as the nation of Israel had God and his word, you see, they had substance. They had the power of God. And the other nations, no matter how big they were and how strong they were, they couldn't stand up to the nation of Israel because they had no substance. God gave the Jews substance and took it away from the wicked nations against them. That's why they won. And that's why you and I, we have the victory today. We don't ever have to kowtow to the world. We don't ever have to lose that victory. We don't ever have to go through the things that we go through. We can live above the circumstances because when you get the Bible principles down in life, over time through that process, you gain substance. And the world has no substance. So you overcome everything in it and you live above the circumstances in the victorious Christian life. The Bible says in 1 John 4, 4, greater is he that is in you that's in the world. That's substance. You have substance, the world doesn't. Unfortunately, most of God's people don't either. But many of you do, and I've watched it, and you, you, when I see a young man or a young lady with substance, you definitely get my attention. Then the last verse. He becometh poor that dealeth with a slack hand. That's negative but the hand of the diligent maketh rich. That's positive. Though that's a great principle in life too. He becometh poor that dealeth with a slack hand. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 9, 10, 11 says, How long without sleep, O sluggard? When wilt thou arise out of thy sleep? Get a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep. So shall thy poverty come as one that travaileth, and thy want as an armed man. You see, a guy goes through life with a slack hand. We call them a slacker. They're lazy. They're lethargic. They don't have any motivation. Proverbs 20, verse 4 says, The sluggard will not plow by reason of the cold. Therefore shall he beg and harvest and have nothing. It's a little chilly out, so he doesn't go to work. He looked for any excuse not to get in there and do something because he's slack. He's a sluggard. And therefore, when the time comes when everybody else has something because they went to work, he doesn't, and he begs. There's an old saying, and 
years ago, you know, the work ethic was completely different than it is today, and they had a lot of great sayings. One of the old sayings I heard years and years ago is that laziness travels so slowly that poverty will always overtake it. Boy, that is so true. Another one I used to hear is an idle as a young man, needy as an old man. Now, nowhere do you see this more evident today when it comes to God's people and the Bible and spiritual things. They're needy. They're lazy. And our generation today is filled with slackness. No motivation, no purpose, no direction, no goals. Kids today that never finish anything they start. See it all the time. See it all the time. I've seen kids go to college. Their parents shell out all kind of money or they get a loan for it and then they never do anything with it. I've seen kids go to specialized training. They get their certification and then they sit on their can and never do anything with it. They just don't have any motivation. And then they wonder why they don't have anything. Look at the last part of verse 4. But the hand of the diligent maketh rich. Now, not, not, not only true in a worldly sense, working for a living, but it's especially true in a biblical sense. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 7 says, Therefore, as ye abound in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge and in all diligence, and your love to us, see that ye abound in this grace also. You see, we as God's people should be diligent in the things of the Lord. The Bible says in Proverbs chapter 27, verse 23, it says, I'm to be, as a pastor, I'm to be diligent to know the state of my flock and look well nigh to my herds. I'm to know what my church needs. I'm to know what the younger Christians need. I'm to know and understand what the older ones need. And I understand, I should understand how to get it to them. You understand what their needs are. Give them both whatever they need. Be there when they have a need. Watch out over them. Protect them. Take care of them. Be diligent. Diligence is a great word. Years ago, probably 30-some years ago, I heard a message. I think it's probably of all the messages that I've heard in life, there's two that probably stand out in my mind and I've never forgotten. One of them I, is, is one that's just fun, but the other one, one was so true. And the one I heard years and years and years ago was out of 2 Timothy chapter 4, and I've preached the message probably four or five times in my life. It's probably my, not only my favorite message to, to, that I heard, but it's probably my favorite message to preach because it means so much to me personally, and it's so true. Because when I heard it, brother, it put the whole Christian world on its ear as far as I was concerned and where my life was going, what I should, what I should do. And it's found in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 21, where Paul's talking to young Timothy. And you know, Paul was, Paul was uh, uh, taking young Timothy under his wing, and he was going to be Paul's replacement. We call First and Second Timothy, along with Titus and Philemon, we call them the pastoral epistles. They're called the pastoral epistles because t- uh, Paul was teaching these guys to be a pastor. In other words, they were going to be his replacement. They were going to take over when he goes off the scene. And uh, you don't get a lot about uh, Titus and Philemon. You got two books to it. But boy, you get a lot of insight into Paul and Timothy. Timothy goes all the way back to the church at Antioch. And you can watch that thing come through in his life. And in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 21, Paul's coming down to the end of his life. It's the last thing he ever said. I always thought it was instructive of the last thing that Paul had on his mind when he was getting ready to go on to be with the Lord was young men because that was his life. He wasn't worried about if he was going to get, uh, you know, a, a civil rights lawyer to get him out of the mess he was in. 
He wasn't worried about going through all the things and finding that he had some great injustice done to him. The last thing on his mind before he goes home to meet the Lord was young men. Do you know why? Because training young men for the ministry was his life. And he's writing to young Timothy there. And he says to him, one of the greatest things I've ever heard a man say when you put it into perspective, he says, do lie diligence to come before winter. Doesn't sound like much, but it's the last thing he said to his replacement. And I looked at that and thought about that, that word diligence. And I thought many, many times in my own personal life when I heard that as a Christian, there's some things that I need to be diligent about. And there's some things that I need to get done in my life as a Christian before the wintertime of my life sets in and I can't. Because you know what? We're all going to hit the wintertime in our life. We're moving in it right now out there. The old wind blows down the street. The leaves start coming off. Pretty soon the leaves will be bare. Pretty soon it'll come to the point where the snow starts to fall. It'll cover everything. And you can't really do much of anything. It's wintertime. And there's going to come a time in your life and my life when uh, you're not going to be able to do what you do right now. There's going to be a time in your life when you're not going to be able to get out there and do the things that God's called you to do. And like the slacker and the person that doesn't really care about those things and he doesn't really worry about working when it's time to work, he just gets out there and does his own thing his own way and doesn't do anything and he's slothful. He spends all his life wasting it away and when he gets to the winter time in his life, there's nothing he can do. And Paul looked at this young man that he was training and he said, young man, there's some things that I need. There's some things that I need before I go and he says, I need you to get them to me. And he says, do thy diligence to come before winter. Now, I don't know if Timothy ever made it. I don't know if he ever got Paul what he needed. I have a way of thinking in my mind that by the time he got there and brought everything that Paul needed, probably the books and the parchments that he mentioned a little bit later on, I probably, he was already dead. But I put that thing in my own personal life and what a terrible thing. And he's saying there to do thy diligence to come before winter. And there's some things in your life and my life that we better get done before wintertime gets here in your life where you can't do it anymore. I'll tell you one thing, and I'm not going to preach the message to you this morning, but I'll tell you one thing in, in context of what we're talking about here. You better reproduce yourself and other people while you still can. I got a question for you. If you died right now, God forbid, if you died right now, died tomorrow, died next week, who'd replace you? Who'd take your place in the ministry? Who have you personally trained in your life? Don't tell me about your seminary education and tell me about what you know about this, what that. That all goes out the wind in wintertime. What I'm asking you right now, if you died, who have you personally trained one-on-one that would take your place to carry on what God has done? That's the question. That's the question. It's a great question. Paul did. Some of God's people right now, 50, 60 years old, and you have nobody out there that you personally have put into the ministry. And I've seen many, many cases where guys get on that day and their own families won't even come to church. There's not one single person that's doing anything for God that uh, God's people have trained. Your whole life, the reason God saved you was to reproduce yourself. It wasn't to learn all that you can about the Bible, though that's important. It wasn't to get the most education that you can get, though that's important. You have one single fundamental function as a child of God, and that is that you bear fruit, and that your fruit remain. 
Not just going out and winning them to Christ and counting them on your, notching them on your gospel pistol. It's talking about taking them and training them and replacing yourself with the people that in the things that God has given you. I understand what the devil does. Our lives get so cluttered with our problems, our finances, our marital issues, all of the things that break down in our families. The devil has made sure that we can never get to the single most important thing. The hand of the diligent maketh rich. And I'm telling you, there's not one single person out there. That's why I push you to get involved in people's lives. I know you don't like it all the time. You wish I'd get off your back on some things, but I'm going to tell you something. That's why I keep pushing every one of you to get involved and to do something with somebody else's life. Before the winter time of your life comes, please, you need to understand, there's a coming a time in your life where you will not be able to do the things that God has given you the ability to do right now. And when you waste the summertime of your life, when winter sets in, you're not going anywhere. Well, if I die tomorrow, I'd rest in the fact that you young men and women in this church could carry this work on. The leadership's already in place. Men and women with substance. There's people that could take this thing over and men and women that would run this thing and it wouldn't miss a beat. But you need to be diligent in the things that God has given you to do. Do them now. Because there's a time coming when you won't be able to do it anymore. The hand of the diligent maketh rich. Get some things done while you can and be diligent about it. Not only in a physical sense of prosperity, but in a spiritual sense for the judgment seat of Christ. And there's where most of the sons (coughs) fail in their relationship with God. And these are some of the most practical verses that you're ever going to find in your life when you start breaking these things down into two liners, one negative, one positive, showing you how God looks at it, showing you how the world looks at it. God saved us for a reason. God saved us for a purpose. Are we either going to be slack in what we do or we're going to be diligent in what we do? Now, I realize that many of you are young, you're just getting dialed into this and you're getting saved and you're getting into the Word of God and somebody's working with you. I get it. But your goal needs to be down the line that you do in somebody else's life what somebody else is doing in yours right now. You have to come to the point that you do the single fundamental thing that God saved you for. It's reproducing yourself. I've known people that have been everywhere in the world and done everything, you know, and get all the education in the world, and they have never produced themselves one time in somebody spiritually. Taking somebody in like Paul took Timothy, giving them what God has given you, nurturing them, bringing them along, getting them to the place in their life that when you pass off the scene, they carry on the torch of the gospel. Well, there's coming a time in all of our lives when winter's coming. And when winter, we're going to talk about it more next week. But when winter comes, you can't get these things done. Now you can see how a book filled with this kind of advice can change your life. Seeing life from God's perspective, seeing life from God's instructions to a son, or seeing it as the world sees it. That's what the book of Proverbs does. It's a great book of contrast. It'll show you how God looks at this, what we should do, but it'll also show you in the same verse how the world looks at it. Do lie diligence to come before winter. Well, we'll hold up there and we'll get into the next set of verses next week.